0: Well, friends, let's turn to Ephesians, or not Ephesians, I say that, I think I said that last week, Ecclesiastes. Let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and go to chapter 4. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. I'm going to spend some more time in this book. It's been really good to, to uh, camp out here for the last number of weeks, and so I'm excited to, to get into it again with you this morning. Uh, there were a few I think that we mentioned, there was a couple names, Aaron and Noah wanted to say hi to you guys, you you uh, said hi specifically, uh, we miss you guys, want to see you soon. I know I saw the Changs on there and uh, Sharon, uh, but uh, can't wait till we can do this again in the same room, really, really looking forward to that. Uh, but we're going to make the best of it again this morning and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's going to be our focus as we look to to God to feed us with His Word today. Um, and as I've said in, a, in in different ways in the last few weeks, Ecclesiastes is a book that is concerned with helping us think about the ultimate meaning of life in this very fallen, broken, confusing world in which we live. Ecclesiastes is a very honest book. It's a very honest look at the world through the eyes of a very wise man. Now, in chapter 3, which we looked at last Sunday, uh, the preacher, as he's called, in, in Hebrew his name is Koheleth, in Greek it's Ecclesiastes, um, the preacher uh, who's a wise king over the Jewish people, I suspect it's probably King Solomon. He's reminding us in chapter three, which we looked at last week, of the fact that the events of our lives and the rhythms of, of this world are ultimately out of our control. They're ultimately out of our hands, that there is so much that goes on in this life and throughout the world that we would not allow if we were God. But of course, he also reminds us that we are, in fact, not God you are not God. I am not God. Uh, and because of that, we should simply trust that God knows what he's doing at all times and look forward to the day when he ties all the loose ends of life together and shows us what he's been working on and working towards since the beginning of time. And we should simply embrace a posture of worship and submission and obedience to him in the meantime. That's what he says in chapter 3. That's what he teaches us in chapter 3. And in reality, he could have very well wrapped up the book there at the end of chapter 3. He could have just simply said what he did there, uh, in those verses, namely that life is full of ups and downs, that we have no control over that, that God is working in, in all of it, and that our job is simply to worship him. He could have just said those things and then jumped immediately to his conclusion, which he eventually gets to in chapter 12 at the end of the book, and said, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. He could have very well have done that, but he didn't. And in fact, he does nothing of the sort, he does nothing like that. Instead, in chapter 3, he teaches us that there is a divine genius and divinely appointed rhythm to all of life, the ups and downs, the good and bad, the pleasant and the painful, that God's at work in and behind all the events of our lives and in all the events of history. And then in chapter 4, it's as if he says, but I fully understand that it sure doesn't seem at times like these things are true. In chapter 3, he's reminding us that God is in control and then in chapter 4, he's admitting openly that this world is still quite broken. And here he continues to equip us to live a meaningful, joyful, purposeful, God-centered life in that world. So what I want to do is read chapter 4 together, read it all in one sitting here, and see how the preacher continues to move the ball forward in in this discussion. Okay, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hopefully you have a Bible with you, and uh, we'll read it together here. He says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. I thought about the dead who are already dead. They are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. All right, so I've given the sermon this morning the title, uh, Surviving a Broken World. Surviving a Broken World. That's what the preacher is doing here in chapter 4. He, is, uh, he goes along pointing out a number of ways that the world in which we live is broken, and it's so broken, as he shows us. And then he gives us a glimpse regarding how to endure that world, how to survive it, how to thrive even in its brokenness. So we're going to look at the text under the umbrella of two headings. If you read through the chapter, it's kind of hard to divide. It's hard to break up. Uh, and and uh, in a sense, you know, trying to break up Ecclesiastes into neat, clean points is a little bit like striving after wind. It's a little bit like shepherding the wind. So I'm not going to try to do that. What I want to do here is just break up our, our attention to this chapter into two, uh, two sections, two headings. The first heading is what we're going to look at are, are the evidences of the world's brokenness, the evidences of the world's brokenness. And then secondly, we're going to consider the encouragement that the preacher gives here to survive the world's brokenness. So we'll look at the evidence of the world's brokenness and then encouragement to survive it. Okay, so first let's, let's look around with the preacher at some of the evidence of the world's brokenness. How do we know that the world is broken? What the preacher's doing is just looking around. He's looking around at the world. He's looking around at, at life, his surroundings, things that go on around him. And he mentions at least six evidences here uh that the world is broken. First is in verses one through three. It's the problem of oppression, oppression or abuse. That's what he points to in verse one when he says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Oppression shows up in various forms throughout the world, and it goes on everywhere. It goes on it goes on Everywhere and in every segment of society, nations oppress whole people groups. Corrupt governments, you know, totalitarian regimes oppress whole nations, whole people groups. Uh, I think of our persecuted brothers and sisters here, those who are living under governments that are actively seeking to snuff the light of Christ out from throughout their nations in places like North Korea and. Afghanistan and Somalia and Pakistan, among other nations, governments oppress people, extremist groups oppress people, they oppress cities they oppress regions, slave masters oppress slaves. Uh, some religious leaders abuse people under their spiritual care. husbands, some husbands abuse their wives, some parents abuse their children, some pastors abuse church members. Um, Walter Kaiser, in his little commentary on Ecclesiastes, says, what a list of possible injuries can be done to person, property, and a person's good name by those in positions of responsibility. There's no end to the list of abuses and oppression that goes on throughout the world. And those who suffer under the various forms of oppression and abuse often go out go go on without any real help or support or comfort he mentions that here two times in verse 1 he says there was no one to comfort them he's highlighting that well it's it's one thing to suffer it's another thing entirely to suffer by yourself to suffer without comfort um but that's what he sees he notices that and and i think we need to remember here that god notices that he sees the oppressions that go on under the sun. And, and the preacher here so sympathizes with those who are oppressed and abused that he actually congratulates in verse 2 those who have already died and then congratulates in verse 3 those who have not yet been born. Because at least they don't have to live under this kind of suffering. At least they don't have to see this and experience this for themselves. Abuse and oppression of the vulnerable is, is one of the greatest evils in all the world. Using positions of authority and responsibility to hurt people is a wicked, wicked thing. Oppressors, abusers can make your life absolutely miserable. And, uh, and I know that there are even some among us who can testify to that. They can make your life miserable. It's clear evidence of the world's brokenness. But then the preacher just keeps leading us along on this tour. He doesn't stop here. He keeps moving and he shows us another evidence of the world's brokenness. And it's it's the envy that drives so many of us to succeed. That's what he points out in verse four here. Um, in, in verse four, he looks at, at the people who are most likely to make it in this world, the people who really succeed, the people who really prosper in clear material ways. So in verse one, he's he's pointing out those who are suffering. And then in verse four, he's pointing out those who, who tend to come out on top. And what he notices is that so many of them are driven by nothing more than a desire to get ahead of everyone else. Look at verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. I don't think he's he's uh looking forward into the future here. I don't think he's speaking, you know, as a prophet here, but he's really nailing 21st century middle class, middle upper class, upper middle class America here, not just the elites of our country. He's nailing most of us here. So much of what drives people to succeed is simply a desire to, to have as much, if not more, than your neighbor has. So that our neighbors look at us and wish they had what we have. You know, so much of our drive to succeed in this life comes from, from nothing more than a restless, discontent heart that's not satisfied with what God has given us. We want big, beautiful houses so that people will say, wow, look at that big, beautiful house you have. We want, uh, we want nice cars so that people will say, man, I wish I had that car, so that when you pull up next to someone at a, at a stoplight or you know, something at an intersection, they're going to look at your car and wish they had your car. We want nice clothes so that people will see that we have all our stuff together. Uh, we want to get in shape so that we can go to the pool and not have to cover up in a potato sack. Right? I still have to cover up in a potato sack, but that's another story. We want our kids to go to the best schools so that they don't end up like those poor, unsuccessful people over there and so that they can eventually get their nice houses and their nice cars and their nice clothes that the people in their so- social circles wish they had. So much of our earthly material success is driven by the sinful desire to get ahead of other people. He notices that in verse 4. And you need to understand he's not he's not uh, criticizing hard work there. He's criticizing sinful motives for hard work, which is a, an important point. And it's important because the next problem he points out is in verse 5, and it's the problem of laziness. Laziness is also evidence of the world's brokenness. He highlights this, this problem in verse 5, and he describes the fool who folds his hands, or you could say he kicks up his feet in his recliner for the rest of his life and goes, gives up on doing anything for anyone. And he says he ends up eating his own flesh. There's a mental image for you. It's meant to be nasty. It's gross. It's supposed to be. Meaning he, he self-destructs. He implodes. Um, he destroys himself in every way. Laziness is a problem in the world too because it contributes nothing good at all to society. It contributes nothing good to relationships or to families or to workplaces or to churches. It doesn't add anything good. Lazy people hurt people because they don't care at all about serving or loving or helping people. And on top of that, they destroy themselves. They eat their own flesh. Laziness is evidence of the world's brokenness. And then he just keeps going. If you look at verses 7 and 8, he points us to the problem of, of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness, that's the that's the man here in verses 7 and 8 who's working hard all of his life, and he's accumulating wealth, and he's pursuing success, and he's working all the time. But he never stops to think of anyone that he could benefit, anyone he could help, anyone he could support with his resources, it's just all about him. What a waste of a life, the preacher says. What a waste. Yet people live this way. People do live this way, looking out only for themselves, with not you know, even a concern in their heart about another soul. It's sad. It's not how it's meant to be. It's not how life is meant to be lived, but people live that way. It's an evidence of the world's Great brokenness. Then next, if you go to verses 13 through 16, he turns to the to the emptiness of power, the emptiness of politics, the emptiness of, of popularity there in verses 13 to 16. Um, it's another evidence of the world's brokenness, just the emptiness of, of making it to the top. Uh, he, he continues to look around the world and he notices how some people are just obsessed with power and obsessed with getting control and authority over people. They're obsessed with getting to the top of society. He mentions in verse 13 this old foolish king who makes it to the top, and then at the end of his life or near the end of his life, he grows senile and hard-hearted and far too stuck in his ways. And then what happens to him? He just ends up being replaced by a young popular leader who has this cinderella story and goes kind of like joseph did in genesis from prison to the throne so the old man is done he made it to the top and now he's got nothing and there's someone new in his place but what happens to that young man who makes it to the top the, the exact same thing happens to him he has some good days. People love him for a short time. They they praise him and support him and his reign as a king for a time. And then verse 16, time goes on and a new generation rises up and they want someone else's king. They don't praise him anymore. That's just how it goes, right? That's just how it goes. Even if you make it to the very top of the food chain, you won't be there for long. Yet, people spend their whole lives trying to get to the top of the mountain for their 15 minutes why it's vapor he says verse 16 it's it's shepherding the wind it's striving after wind it's fleeting then and i i think it's worth its own point though it's related to the to the emptiness of power and popularity and all of those things the preacher's also Pointing out here the problem of the fickleness of people. The fickleness of people. That's a sixth evidence of the world's brokenness that he notices in verses 15 and 16. I think that's worth noting. Uh, people love you the one day and then they want you gone the next. They'll praise you today and then the minute you slip up, they're done with you. They have no more use for you. They'll find someone else to praise. You can't put your hopes in people. We try, but you. Sh- there's no point in doing that. People will disappoint you. People will turn on you. People will abandon you. It's a, it's a reality in this world. It's clear evidence that the world is broken. Now, my question is, are we with him in this? The preacher's like, he, he's kneading this into us like leaven into a lump of dough. He's just working this into us, that the world is broken, it's messed up, it's fleeting, it's vapor, it's temporary. Why is that? It's because it is not the eyes of, of Christian, biblically informed faith that looks around the world and sees only nice, happy things. The Christian, the, the true student of the Bible is not the person that looks around at all the bad, problematic things going on in the world and says, oh, those things aren't that bad. God is good. God is faithful. God is in control. God loves us. All those things. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely true that God is good, that God is in control, that God is faithful, that God loves us. All of that is true. Those things are absolutely true. And they're are certainly tangible evidences of his goodness all throughout the world. Just simple things, you know, like oxygen and sunshine and rain and springtime and food and family and friends and church and fellowship and the Bible and the mountains and recreation and laughter. And the preacher, in fact, throughout the book, notices those things too and he commends them to us. But despite all that, the problems that the preacher is pointing out to us here are still really bad, very bad. And God doesn't call us to shy away from that. He doesn't call us to look away from that, to pretend as if it's not true. Um, he actually instead gives us a framework and language to understand why this is. He tells us in Scripture, this is not heaven. This is not paradise. The world is under a curse. Every tear has not yet been wiped away. Sin has not yet been put away. Death is still among us. The serpent's head has not yet been crushed. It's not unbelief that says, this world is broken. My life is broken. I am broken. I've been hurt. I've been abused. I've been betrayed. I've been sinned against. And it hurts. It's not unbelief that says that. Life is hard. Life is harsh. Life can be cruel. It's in the Bible. It's in this chapter. And you can see that everywhere you look if you're being honest about what you see. So then the question is, the question throughout this book is, how do we live in a world like that? How do we live like we were meant to live in a world that's so broken? How can we survive this broken world in which we live? And here we go from the evidence of the world's brokenness to some simple, critical encouragement to help us survive it. Where's the encouragement? Well, it's in that paragraph that I skipped just now. In this previous section, it's in verses 9 through 12. Verses nine through twelve, he's giving us encouragement to survive the world's brokenness uh, by just giving a glimpse of how to do it just a just a bit He's, he's sharing a, a some simple observations. This is not everything there is to say. This is just a key point to make at this point in the book. How do you survive the world's brokenness? Here's his point in verses nine through twelve. Don't do it alone. Don't go through this life alone let's read verses 9 through 12 again he says two are better than one two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil for if they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again if two lie together they keep warm but how can one keep warm alone and though a man might prevail against one who is alone two will withstand him a threefold cord is not quickly broken he's just observing here that if you go through this life alone you're not going to make it you're not going to make it and i find it very interesting that the that the preacher's prevailing concern throughout this book is not to it's not to explain to us what exactly God is doing, or how exactly God could possibly be in control over a world that is so broken like ours is. He's not giving us a systematic theology lesson here. He's not trying to give us answers to those kind of questions. He, he assumes that that many of the answers to those kinds of questions are with beyond our reach. That God doesn't give us those answers, at least in this life. He simply assumes in the book that God is at work here, that God is in control here, that he's ruling over all of the things of life, the good and the bad, and is fully in control at all times. That's his assumption. But his concern is to teach us how to live in a world where we don't get the answers to the vast majority of our most perplexing questions, at least until we die. How do we live in that world? How do you live in a world like that? That's just so broken. And that's beyond our ability to repair. And where we're told that God is ruling over it, and yet we don't see how he could be sometimes. We don't see what he's doing at times. How do you live in a world like that? That's broken and and that that you can't fix. Well, here he simply points to one critical aspect of living life well in that kind of world. And he says, essentially, by way of observation, you have to do it in community. You have to do it in community. You survive this broken world and live to the glory of God in this broken world only with the support of specific faithful companions. What are the benefits of living life with the support of faithful friends? Uh, what are the benefits? Well, in basic terms, he he points out four of these benefits, I think. Number one, or, or three at least, I'll mention three. Number one is in verse 9, you can accomplish more in this life with friends. He says two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. They They see a good result from their toil. You can help one another out in times of need. That's verse 10. He says, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. You know, suffering is one thing, but suffering without anyone to comfort you is, is totally another. Sleeping out in the cold by yourself is one thing, but sharing body heat with someone in the cold is quite another thing. So you can help one another in times of need. And then thirdly, you can protect one another from harm. That's his point in verse 12. Two are more likely to withstand the attack of a robber or someone who's, try, who's coming against you than one person is. And three is even better, you know, simple observations. This isn't like high level stuff, high level theology. He's just saying you can accomplish more in this life with some specific faithful friends. You can help one another out in times of need, and you can protect one another from harm. What's the idea? He's uh, he's pointing to something much bigger. Uh, much more that that you'll find all throughout scripture a much bigger theme than just these practical points. The theme is that the biblical theme is that we were made to live in community with other people. We were made for that. Um, scripture says that we're made in the image of God, and God himself lives in community. We worship a triune God, one God in. Three eternal, coexisting persons. God exists in community. God, from eternity past, has lived in a perfect, blessed union uh, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is, is exists in community, and he made humans in his image, and he made it clear after he made humans in his image that it was not good for man to be alone. When he said that in Genesis to Adam, it wasn't just a point to Adam specifically. It was a point to all of us. We were not made to be alone. Your life is meant to be lived in partnership with other people. We need real, godly, faithful friends. And we're called to be real, godly, faithful friends to other people. That's why, for instance, God has given us the church, the local church, that's why he's given us other Christians. It's for mutual support and encouragement and accountability and prayer and correction. Because we are not self-sufficient. Some of us think we are, and we're not. We're needy. We have blind spots. We get weak. We fall into sin. We become discouraged. We get overwhelmed by suffering at times. How do you survive this broken world? Don't live in it alone. Don't live in it by yourself. Now with that, I want to offer you three closing encouragements okay, to help, help us all survive and even thrive spiritually in this broken world in which we're all living. Number one is to pursue deep spiritual friendships with a small handful of people. Pursue deep spiritual friendships with a small handful of people. Notice how I put that. Deep spiritual friendships, like pursue your deepest friendships with people who will point you to Christ and who will encourage you in your faith and serve and support God's sanctifying work in your life and not stand in the way of that work. The point here is not simply to have people that you can vent to or gossip with or say anything or do anything with, uh, you know, or say anything to with complete immunity. It's not simply to pursue friendships who have the same interests as you and enjoy the same hobbies as you and are in the same stage of life as you or anything like that. Those things aren't bad in a friendship, but they're not foundational. Biblically speaking, no, pursue friendships with people who will help you in your walk with Christ. People who will encourage you with the hope of the gospel when you're discouraged. People who will graciously confront you when you're sinning people who will pray for you consistently, um, people who are mindful of how you need to grow, but also who are accepting of who you are and where you're at, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord. You need people who will help you see where God is at work in your life when you can't see it. You need people to help you see how God might be at work in the lives of others when you can't see it. You need people who, who encourage you and build you up with the scriptures in a, in a personal way, not people who just, you know, machine gun Bible verses at you, but people who bring the truth of scripture to bear upon your trials and joys in a meaningful, helpful way. Pursue meaningful, deep, meaningful spiritual friendships with a small handful of people. Pursue these kinds of relationships with a small handful of people. I just want to repeat that. Did you hear that? A small handful. I mean, here in Ecclesiastes, you know, in these verses, 9 through 12, he mentions two or three. He kind of gives the impression that it's two or three. We're not talking about trying to pursue these friendships with everyone, not with as many people as possible, just, just with a small handful of people. Love everyone right? You're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, love everyone, but know that the most mutually beneficial, the most redemptive sorts of relationships are only going to be had with a small hand group, a handful of people. And that's okay. Now, some of us are blessed to have these kinds of relationships. Uh, and some of us aren't. Some of us aren't. So if you don't have these kinds of relationships, how do you get them? How do you get these kinds of relationships? Um, I've only really got one word of advice for you there, at least, at least today. The most important thing I could say in answering that question is it's twofold. You have to work hard at it and you have to give it time. You have to work hard at it and you got to give it time. How much work? How much time? I think it's different for everyone. I think in God's providence and the rhythm of life, you know, the, the tide coming in, the tide going out, the ups, the downs. I think it's different for everyone. Um, if you're saying, you know, I've been working at this for a very long time and it's still, I'm still coming up short, still don't have these kinds of relationships. If you've been working at it and it's been a good deal of time and you still don't have this, what I can say to you is keep working at it and keep giving it time. Stay patient. And keep working. Okay? So that's first, pursue deep spiritual friendships with a small handful of people. Number two, by way of application, pursue or, or purpose to be a faithful friend to a small handful of people. Purpose to be a faithful friend to a small handful of people. In my experience, there are two big reasons. Uh, why many people in the church don't ever experience deep, supportive, spiritual friendships in this life, um, which is true outside the church as well, but but the bulk of my experiences with relationships in the church, there are two big reasons why people don't ever experience these kinds of friendships. The first reason is that they don't work hard enough at cultivating them. Just to be honest, they don't, they don't work hard enough at getting them. They don't invest enough time. They're not available to people. Uh, they don't put the work in. You know, they're fear fearful and afraid of getting burnt and afraid of getting betrayed. And so they don't stick their neck out there. That's one reason, certainly, why people don't end up with these friendships. But another reason is no one ever befriends them in this way. No one ever reaches out to them. No one pursues them. But we're responsible on both sides of this issue. You have to pursue supportive spiritual friendships with people in the church. But you're also called to befriend people in the church, to be friends to people in the church. And some of the people you will be friends to won't necessarily be the people that you become friends with in a strong mutual sense. And that's okay. Your brothers and sisters in the church need spiritual friendship, they need redemptive relationships. But if everyone in the church is just sitting around waiting for people to befriend them, no friendship is ever going to develop here or in any church or in any place. Be the friend of that Paul describes in Philippians 2 verses 3 through 4, the person who does nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility counts others as more significant than himself or herself. Be a friend who looks not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What if we purposed, what if every member in this church purposed to make our church a place where no member, no committed member of the church, goes without a real, deep, spiritual friendship? That's a high bar. But what if all of us made that commitment? We're not going to let that happen here. We're going to befriend people. Not just wait for people to befriend us. Not just wait for people to serve us, but to serve them, to befriend them. So that's number two. Purpose to be a faithful, spiritual friend to a small handful of people. And then number three. This is really... Most important and most foundational. Don't neglect the most faithful friend of all. Don't neglect the most faithful friend of all. God in Jesus Christ is the most faithful friend of all. Remember as you live your life in this broken world, the promise of God to his church in, a, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5. He has said, I will not leave you or forsake you. That's the pledge of an Almighty committed friend, and then he follows up those words in Hebrews thirteen and says, quoting scripture again, he says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me? The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what will man do? What can man do to me? How can you say that? You have to know that God is with you, that God isn't going to leave you or forsake you. You know, you think the, the greatest thing that Christ has done for us is not to be our friend in this life. It's not. The greatest and most important thing that Jesus has done for us is to satisfy the wrath of God toward all who trust in him as Lord by bearing our sins on the cross and suffering for those sins in our place. That's the best thing Jesus has done for us. But one of the sweetest blessings of his atoning work, his redemptive work on the cross, is the reconciliation with God that it creates for us. The enmity between us and God because of our sin that it abolishes for us. And the friendship that he gives us as a result throughout this life in this broken world. That is one of the sweetest blessings that flow down to us from the cross. He has said he will not leave us or forsake us. And he has said that because he died for our sins in our place and has purchased us for God for eternity, that he will not leave us or forsake us. He did too much for us on the cross to abandon us in our sufferings and our difficulties today. The greatest friend of all is with us. He's with every Christian. Every step of the way throughout this messed up life, and yet we, we if we're honest, we so often take that for granted. When we look to other things and we look to other people to satisfy us and encourage us. And we look to people to be what only he can truly be for us. Don't neglect the greatest friend of all. Yes, this world is broken. <clears throat> you bet it is. But Jesus Christ stands ready to befriend you as you limp along throughout it. He will stand with you from day to day, and he will not leave you if you are one who trusts in him as Lord and King. It reminds me of, of the words of an old hymn, which we're going to sing in just a moment together. From the, the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation. The last verse of the song encourages us with these words, it says the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. If you know that, if you rely on him, if you experience that friendship, it will, uh, it will support you and encourage you when you're walking through seasons of life without many friends. And it will strengthen you and equip you to be friends to others as you point them to Him. He's the greatest friend of all. Don't neglect, don't neglect that in this broken world. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You... Through your Son, our friend of sinners, that you are faithful to the end, that you will not leave us or forsake us, that you love us with an everlasting love, and that you're with us in the valleys and on the mountaintop. We praise you for your love that, that uh, causes you to be such a faithful friend to us in this world. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that's under your curse, waiting for your redemption, waiting for you to lift that thing forever. And yet it's still your world. So we pray that you'd help us to walk with you closely and to support one another as we experience the world's brokenness in so many forms. May you be a friend to us throughout our days. In Jesus' name.